Now let's transition to the preaching of the word. And before you get comfortable, please turn to Psalm 51. And let's read that so it is fresh in our minds. Please turn to Psalm 51. This morning we are going to pick up where we left off last week in Psalm 51 with a with part three of a four-part series entitled Godly Repentance. So please follow along as I read these inspired words of David. For the choir director, a psalm of David, when Nathan the prophet came to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Be gracious to me, O God, according to your loving kindness. According to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being and in the hidden part you will make me no wisdom. Purify me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me away from your presence and do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, the God of my salvation. Then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips that I may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. By your favor, do good to Zion. Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offering and whole burnt offering. Then young bulls will be offered on your altar. Please be seated. Does the name Ted Haggard mean anything to anybody? Anyone, any, anyone else? Just one person. Ted Haggard. He was the founder and former pastor of New Life Church in Colorado Springs, Colorado. He was also the leader, the leader, of the National Association of Evangelicals, or the NAE, which was an organization that boasts of representing more than 45,000 local churches. 
Haggard was popular for his charismatic speaking ability and non-traditional antics, which drew about 14,000 regular churchgoers Sunday after Sunday for years. Looking at his outward appearance and judging from his public notoriety, everyone thought that he was on top of the world. He was warm. He was likable. He was friendly. He was handsome. He was gifted and loved by countless people. He had a beautiful, loyal family and spoke to gigantic crowds all over the world. And he was doing quite well financially. In other words, you could say that he reached the pinnacle of mainstream celebrity Christianity, if there is such a thing. Even his own adult son said that he, quote, seemed practically perfect. But come to find out, Ted was far from perfect. He had a dirty little secret. Behind closed doors, he led a double life. In 2006, he was accused of being engaged in an immoral relationship with a man for three years. You can imagine the denial, the shock, the horror, the outright disbelief of Haggard's followers upon hearing this accusation. No doubt that in a direct aftermath of these allegations, they all sided, all 14,000 and more, sided with their pastor who had displayed countless acts of kindness and faithfully pastored them for decades. Can you imagine the man who shepherded your soul for decades being accused of an adulterous relationship such as this? Well, eventually, the shock and horror quickly turned into devastation and humiliation when Ted Haggard confessed his sin. And he did, in fact, make a habit of adultery, immorality, and deception. What ensued following this shocking admission was his dismissal immediate dismissal from his megachurch pastorate, his immediate removal from his position as president of the NAE, and his exile from his own hometown. This controversy was so embarrassing that his church board literally asked him to leave the state. So what happened after that was a long restoration process to his family. His wife, bless her heart, stuck with him. To his church and ultimately to his God. Does this unfortunate but true story sound familiar? It should. Because Ted Haggard's story is strikingly similar to the biblical narrative we read in 2 Samuel 11 and 12. Where we discover that King David fell into the nearly exact same litany of transgressions. 
There are differences for sure, but what ties them together is this. A high-profile leader committed wicked sins and paid the price temporarily. But worse, experienced the spiritual anguish brought on by their gross sin. Here's what else the two men experienced. An overwhelming desire for renewed fellowship with God after the fellowship was broken by sin. That's the main point we're going to talk about this Lord's Day, which is the fifth facet of godly repentance revealed in Psalm 51. Go ahead and put that slide up there, Pip. Now, my professor at seminary would be ashamed of me right now because he told us if you can't preach, use PowerPoint. But since we're in a lengthy series, I want to make sure we're all on the same page today. Here's where we are. We've covered the first four facets of godly repentance, and today is the fifth. The fifth facet is an exhaustive plea for renewed fellowship in verses 8 to 12. Within the scope of this exhaustive plea, there are ten petitions. That's why I call it exhaustive. Oftentimes when we pray for something, we state it over and over again in differing terms, don't we? For example, say you're praying for the salvation of your friend or family member. You might pray like this, God, open their heart. Give me boldness and gentleness. Open the door to speak the truth. Give me clarity and courage in my evangelism, right? So, so there's, our, our, our pleas to God usually have several petitions that are involved. So that's what David is doing here in verses 8 to 12. In those five verses, he makes a plea for renewed fellowship with God that's spelled out in ten brief petitions, okay? So we're going to go over these ten petitions, and we're just going to follow the outline of the text this morning. So first, notice what he says in verse 8. He says, make me to hear joy and gladness. Look in your Bible. If you can, pick up a Bible and follow along with me. I want you guys to, to see that I'm not making this stuff up, first of all. And secondly, it really helps you to have the words of Scripture more cemented in your mind. Make me to hear joy and gladness. Now pay attention to what David is asking for. He is asking for the ability to listen. He is petitioning God to allow him to once again go into the sanctuary and hear the praises that are being offered to God to join in. What's interesting here is, why would he pray this? Because in his spiritual condition... After having sinned so egregiously, he could not enter the place of worship with holy people and participate. If he did, it would be meaningless. It would be fake. It would be superficial and shallow. Worse, it would just be a ritual. And we all know what God thinks about dead ritual, don't we? So listen, my precious sheep. We have so much to gain from this brief petition. 
First of all, we are reminded that worship is centered around the heart, not the emotion and not the act itself. David was the king. He could have gone anywhere he wanted, whenever he wanted, and including uh, the sanctuary. He didn't need permission to go into the sanctuary. But in his spiritual condition, he couldn't bear to stand among the people of God and sing praises until he fully repented. Second, we're reminded that worship requires preparation. In other words, we need to examine ourselves and spiritually adapt our thinking to holy things before church on Sunday. If we don't prepare ourselves, we sing the songs we sing, and while our lips are moving, our minds are on something else. And when our minds wander during worship, that includes the preaching, it's usually on worldly or selfish things, isn't it? So David could not in good conscience step into the sanctuary without knowing that he was forgiven and he knew he could not be forgiven if he didn't repent. Now I am fully aware that it's been said the church is a hospital for sinners. That's true. That's true. If you're hurting, this is the place to be. Amen? But that does not mean that the corporate worship of a holy God is meant for proud, haughty, arrogant, unrepentant people either. David knows that he cannot hear joy and gladness and join in on it without repenting and being forgiven first for his gross sin. The second petition is in the second line of verse 8. He goes on to say, let the bones which you have broken rejoice. Now obviously, given the context, David is not talking about his literal bones. So what is he talking about? Well, simply put, for the sake of time, let me just say flat out that he's referring to his spirit. He's saying, let, this, let my spirit which you have broken rejoice. As we read on, David admits that Yahweh crushed his spirit. How did he do that? But before I answer that, I just want to point out the unpopular truth that this is God's business. God is a God of loving kindness. Amen. But he does break people. And it is a part of being spiritually restored. Now, how does he crush the spirit of a sinner? Fair question? Well, it's through his righteous, perfect law. And when it is brought to bear upon the human heart that's been regenerated... It makes one feel guilty and spiritually depressed. Doesn't it? That is to say, for David, his whole, his whole inner person 
had been depressed by his transgressions and guilty conscience. So he petitions God to repair his broken spirit and cause him to enjoy and participate in the sanctuary once more as he did before he sinned with Bathsheba. So friends, the implication is clear. When was the last time that God broke you? Or has he ever? Something to think about. The third petition in this exhaustive plea for renewed fellowship is in verse 9. David goes on to say, Hide your face from my sins. Hide your face from my sins. Another unconventional plea, is it not? Have you ever heard anyone pray like this? I don't think I have. And can I say something as an aside? By and large, brothers and sisters, we have a much softer, casual view of prayer. We tend to focus so much on emotion and physical needs and neglect the spiritual. And by now, I hope you can see that this prayer is all about the spiritual healing. And in fact, very few words in Scripture have to do with physical healing. And the ones that do, it's mainly telling a story. It's, it's mainly a descriptive passage about Jesus and the apostles healing a sick person to authenticate the veracity of the message. So at this point in the series, let me remind you that this is a model prayer. And at the very least, by the end of this series, I hope that you will find yourself praying as David did in Psalm 51. Now back to verse 9. David wrote, hide your face from my sins. Think of what we do when we want to ignore something or an act as if it doesn't exist when it really does exist. We look away. We turn or we hide our face. Have you ever walked in on somebody, perhaps an adult or a child, doing something a little shady? Really wasn't too morally wrong, but you know, uh, that's, that's a little shady. You could, get, you could get in trouble for that. Happens to me in the military all the time. <laughs> so when I catch somebody doing something kind of shady, I think, Do I want to put a strenuous relationship and confront the person or tell on him? And the person who sees me catch them, they know that's what I'm thinking. And they say, or they, at least they think, you're going to wrap me out, dude? And because sometimes I have a fear of man, I care more about what that person thinks of me than what he's doing. I turn away and I say, nope, didn't see it. And I turn around and go about my business. In a small way, for the repentant believer, even though God does see all the shady things we do, and they're usually more than shady, right? Sin is not shady. It's sin. But God 
turns away and graciously does not hold it against us. It's as if he catches us in the act and says, oh, I didn't see it. So in essence, David is praying that God would look at his sin, turn away, and forgive. He's praying for forgiveness. The fourth petition in this plea really overlaps with the third, so I'll move on. Draw your attention to the latter half of verse 9. He says, blot out all my iniquities. He made a very similar uh, uh, petition early in verse 1, which says, according to the greatness of your compassion, blot out my transgressions. So I won't go too deep into it, but I will remind you that blot out literally means to scrape or remove. And so David is using this term as a figure of speech, comparing divine forgiveness to scraping a slate clean. This idea communicates the truth that God completely removes sin if the sinner repents. And now we are all born with a messy slate, right? Therefore, we need that slate to be scraped off. And as David realized, we have no ability to scrape it off ourselves, do we? That's the bad news. We have a dirty slate but we have not the tools to clean it. But the good news is that if we repent, God will wipe the slate clean for us. Because He has the power and ability and the character to do it. The fifth petition is in verse 10. It indicates a minor transition in the text and I know it will sound very familiar to you because we have just sung these words. And we've sung these words quite often in this church. It says, verse 10, create in me a clean heart. David is petitioning God to change his heart so that he would not fall into the same sin again. As a repentant man, David realized that his heart was in the wrong place. And when he sinned, he knew he needed a change of heart to prevent him from sinning again. That's what he's praying for in verse 10. He's praying for God to change his thinking. Now, it's vital for you to understand what the heart is. Because the culture creates a false dichotomy. The culture says that there's the heart and the mind. You know, your mind is telling you one thing, but your heart is pulling you in this direction. Follow your heart. The culture tells you to listen to your heart. But brothers and sisters... This is the only way I know how to shepherd you. Do not listen to your heart. Do not listen to your heart because your heart is wicked. 
Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure. Who can understand it? Not only should you not follow your heart because Jeremiah says it's deceitful, but the wisdom in Proverbs said that's a stupid thing to do. Proverbs 28.26 says, He who trusts in his own heart is a fool. So listen. Number one, the Bible does not divide the mind from the heart. They're the same thing. And if you follow it, number two, you will be led down the wrong path. The human heart is the seat of the will. It is the control center of the mind. Whatever you are taught, whatever you learn and accept as truth, will dictate what you do, think, and say. And if God is going to change your heart, how is He going to do it? Listen, it only starts with this prayer. This is where it starts. But if God's going to renovate your heart, which is innately broken, you must study the Word of God. And that takes diligent, hard work, does it not? There is no sanctification and holiness apart from a regular, diligent, honest study of God's written word. So when you sin and the Spirit convicts you, pray for God to do a work in your heart through His word. Do not look to self or to others because everyone else's heart is just as wicked. Don't follow your heart. Follow Christ. Amen? The sixth petition in this plea is in the second line of verse 10. Another familiar phrase. And renew a steadfast spirit within me. Again, As in the previous verse, the second line parallels the first. That's how Hebrew poetry works. David wants a clean heart and a renewed spirit. And at this point in the psalm, I'm thinking, wow, David's asking for a lot. (laughs) Isn't he? But he is because... He has been wholly broken by sin, and therefore he needs to be wholly spiritually repaired. It is not enough to have a clean heart. It's not enough to change your thinking. There has to be a desire for a long, continual pattern of righteousness. Or else you end up back at square one. Or otherwise you end up back at verse one. You know, it's common for people to pray, God, change me. But it's not so common to pray, God, make that change last. We see it all the time in mainstream Christianity where people are pressured and sort of manipulated with music and fantastic, extravagant speeches to walk an aisle and say a canned prayer. 
And at first, sometimes the person praying the canned prayer seems genuine. There's tears, there's emotion. There's what seems to be genuine sincerity. There's outward remorse and there's a proclamation of faith. But what happens is that the evangelist fails to mention something. That true faith and true repentance is steadfast. It's not temporary. So pray for a changed heart as David did. But also don't forget to pray that God would help you to not revert back into sin. If you pray for forgiveness with the intent of not being steadfast, then it is worldly sorrow. True repentance is a lasting work. The seventh and eighth petition in this exhaustive plea for renewed fellowship changes to negatives. Notice in verse 11 it says, Do not cast me away from your presence. Now, time out. For me personally, this verse is the most striking. I'd go a step further and say this portion of this prayer is the most terrifying. Because after having been known by God savingly and after being reconciled to Him, I can't fathom being cast aside. Can you? Can a believer who's truly regenerate be cut off from having access to God? Well, yes and no. In this sense, no. There can be no eternal division between the elect and heaven. If so, you have major problems with the teaching of Jesus and the apostles. And you question the very faithfulness of God to keep his covenant. And plus, since God is omnipresent, there is a sense in which we're always in his presence, right? But in this sense, yes. Like David experienced, God's children can be so crushed by sin that it feels as if they deserve to be treated like Cain. Even though they know they won't. In other words, I believe David is wrestling with his assurance here. Because he knows just how heinous his sin was. As one commentator observed, this verse is not concerned with the bare doctrine of perseverance, but with the practice of it. So if you've ever doubted your salvation... If you've ever doubted God's ability and willingness to forgive and keep you, join the club. We all have. As we see here, even the famous one who was after, a, after God's own heart did. And sometimes... 
It's not a bad thing. Because the scripture does call, call us to examine ourselves to see if we're in the faith. The eighth petition is another negative. It's intriguing in a different way because it presents more of a theological quandary for us Baptists who love to preach the perseverance of the saints. Look what it says. And do not take your Holy Spirit from me. Wow. How many of you, when we've sung that, have wondered what that really means? I have. That's one reason why I wanted to study the psalm. And without a theological and historical knowledge of the ministry of the Holy Spirit in the Old Covenant or the Old Testament, this may seem a little troublesome. This is why theology is important. So you can understand how to interpret these passages. You need to know what the role of of the Holy Spirit was then and now. But for the sake of time, let me just simply state that David is not saying that once the Holy Spirit regenerates, indwells, and seals the believer, can leave. Our sin does not make us forfeit the Spirit that dwells in us. That's a false and dangerous doctrine. And so this petition of David must be harmonized with the full revelation of the entirety of Scripture. Simply stated that this is a reference to the special Holy Spirit's anointing before Pentecost on theocratic mediators. Now, if that sounds Greek to you, let me explain. Israel was ruled under a governmental system or model called a theocracy. In a theocracy, God chose a human king or leader. And through that leader, sometimes through a prophet, sometimes directly to the leader, Yahweh would lead the people. So think of, in, a, in, a, in this theocracy, God is the one ruling through a human person, through, through a human mediator. Sometimes this leader that God shows would be given special, temporary, almost superhuman-like ability to do extraordinary things. I'm sure you can remember passages that say, the Spirit came upon so-and-so. Maybe the first one that comes to your mind is is, um, Samson, who pushed the pillars and basically killed everybody that was there, including himself, right? The Holy Spirit came upon him to give him the physical strength to do that. Now, what David was most likely thinking about when he wrote this was Saul. King Saul sinned by not killing the Amalekites. Yahweh told King Saul to wipe everybody out, including the king. And including the animals. But Saul didn't. He kept Agag alive. And the consequence was that he's rejected by God as king. And 
First Samuel 16:14 says, "Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul." And that signified Saul's inability to be king. So David has that fresh in his mind. He knows that if he was going to continue to rule Israel on behalf of Yahweh, he desperately needs to maintain that special, empowering gift of the Spirit. And he prays for it. So in light of what David is saying here, we New Testament believers have to be careful in praying this verse. Since it is not in line with the New Covenant. Rather, when the Spirit convicts you of the need to repent, listen. Don't pray the Spirit would leave you because He won't. Pray that you do not quench the Spirit. If you're truly born again, the Spirit will never leave you. But your sin can affect your usefulness. And it can affect your ability and desire to serve. Until you're made right. In other words, this overarching facet in the process of godly repentance is to ask God not to remove you from spiritual service. Now, the ninth and tenth petition is an exhaustive plea for restoration. In verse 12, he says, Restore to me the joy of your salvation. Now, this petition, it requires no explanation, does it? We can take this one at face value. David is asking that God would give him the same sense or the same feeling or the same state of mind of pure gladness that accompanies the knowledge of being brought into a right standing before God. Can't we all relate to that? Can you remember a time when you felt this joy? Even if you're convinced you were saved as a child and can't remember a time never loving the Lord, you can still relate. You can still think of instances where this feeling of joy just overwhelmed you because you have been saved from eternal damnation. But how quickly we lose that joy. And if we don't get it back soon, brothers and sisters, we fall. And when we fall, we don't have to fall into adultery. We don't have to fall into really nasty outward sins. We can fall into the sin of lukewarmness. We can fall into the sin of pride. We can fall into the sin of jealousy. Those sins are just as wrong in God's sight as the sins David committed. 
And may I be so bold enough to say that in this culture, the biggest sin that comes from a lack of joy is consumerism. Because if you do not experience the joy of your salvation and see yourself as a servant as David did, you will view yourself as a customer of the local church. That's not what we are. We are not customers of Christ. We are servants of Christ. And you will always see yourself as a servant if you maintain the joy of your salvation. I'm so passionate about that. And until we are forgiven and freed from this guilt, we will remain forgetful. And we will sink into a long season of sin. David ends this portion of this psalm in verse 10. The last petition in this exhaustive plea for renewed fellowship. In it he says, sustain with me, excuse me, sustain me with a willing spirit. And so, after having prayed for God to do a mighty work in his soul, the psalmist yearns for a personal free will desire to do God's will. Now, a little bit of background is helpful here. Briefly, let me mention that this word willing was a religious Jewish term in the Hebrew to refer to a free will offering in the temple. Anyone who wanted to spontaneously and freely worship Yahweh could bring a peace offering, which was also called a free will offering. The people responded as their hearts stirred them. And the church would like to say, the Spirit led me, right? The Spirit prompted me or the Spirit convicted me to do this. It happens all the time. I just felt led to give you this. I just felt led to pick up the phone and say, how you're doing? Right? You do that on your own free will, and that's great. Similarly, back in the Old Covenant, the people would respond as their heart stirred them. It was not done out of pressure or guilt or obedience to a law. It was not done to be popular or to gain prestige. It was done of their own accord. And so David is likely praying for Yahweh to help him maintain an authentic yearning to worship God freely without coercion or manipulation. Is that applicable to us today? How many times? I mean, I just read Paul Tripp, right? You guys know who Paul Tripp is? He's written a lot of books. He's very well-respected, reformed guy. He wrote this blog article last week, and even he admitted he goes to church sometimes. He doesn't want to be there. Have you ever... That's okay. I won't won't take it offense. (laughs) Right? I've said before, I don't want us to be fake people, all right? It's okay. It's okay to tell me I didn't feel like coming to church today. And No, I'm just kidding. But we need to understand that God wants us to worship him freely. 
So pray for the attitude that David is praying here. Pray that God will give us the desire and yearning to faithfully worship. To faithfully do His will. Pray that He would generously help you to offer your time and resources to the edification of the church and the furtherance of the gospel. That's the main thing, right? And so think of it this way as I wrap it up here. When you sin, brothers and sisters, what you're really doing is you're worshiping self. Because in our sin, we say we care more about what we want than what God wants, right? When we sin and we repent by God's grace, worship God not just on the Lord's day. Worship Him every day of the week. Center your life on Him. We covered a lot today. And I've still only scratched the surface. You say, dude, you've preached this psalm four times already. What do you mean? Well, with the way my mind works, I like to go deep into things. But I don't want to bore you guys. But I pray that you will walk away from this message and the previous messages having a deeper understanding of what godly repentance is and how to repent. First, you make a plea for divine pity or compassion. You plead for spiritual cleansing. You confess your guilt and moral impotence. And the next thing that you pray is a plea for renewed fellowship. Let me encourage you to go home. Read and reread and reread this psalm and allow it to be solidified in your mind. If you find it easy to memorize stuff, this is one to memorize. So the next time that you fall into despair because of sin, you'll know what to do. Let's pray together. Father, thank you so much for your word and thank you that you've given us Psalm 51 so we can know how to be restored to you after we sin because we do sin often. Sometimes we sin what seems to be in our eyes a meager sin or a small sin and then we repent by your grace. But for some of us, there are seasons where we fall deeper into sin and we rationalize it or minimize it. And for lack of knowledge of your holiness and justice and righteousness, we fail to repent, Lord. So if any here today are in a season of sin, whether it's in secret or out in the open, May you humble them to repent and may you give them the hope and remind them of the joy that comes along with knowing Christ Jesus the Savior. In our religion, Lord, we know that there is always restoration and there is always 
reconciliation available between us and you, but also between one another. Lord, help us to seek restoration in all aspects of our life. Not only for our benefit, but for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen.